Amazing. So we're in a series at the moment called uh, Elementary, because I'm a fan of Sherlock, and because uh, the Bible in Hebrews takes us into some elementary truths about Jesus, and we've been going through that together. Uh, last Sunday, I don't know if we shared this or not, we were due to have some guests with us, some guest speakers, and at the last minute we worked out that the arrangements had been confused with something else, and so we dived in last Sunday to the theme that we were going to be looking at this Sunday, so we looked at baptism. Uh, the themes that we've been looking at are the repentance from acts that lead to death, the fact that now in Jesus we can turn, we can change, we can be transformed, faith in God, that there is a place that we can trust, there's a place we can cling, there's a rock we can stand on, uh, and the third one, baptism to take the plunge, to take a dive into all that Jesus has done for us, to say, Lord, your death on the cross, I want in on all the power of that, the forgiveness and the freedom that that brings. And so I was this week going to be doing Take the Plunge Part 2, uh, and then um, last night, and this might sound strange, but you know I'm strange, so that's okay. Um, I had a dream last night, and I don't often dream. Um, I don't often remember my dreams. Uh, and in this dream, I saw a prison. Uh, and this prison was shaking. And as it started to shake, the doors of this prison came open. Uh, and I knew there was a story in the Bible, in the book of Acts, uh, that was all, all about this. Uh, you'd be glad to know. Your minister knows a little bit about the Bible as well. So I, um, I, I looked it up, and I realized this is a baptism story. Um, and so what I want to do this morning is walk through this story together. So it's going to be a little bit different uh, today. Uh, this, <laughs> this might take me two minutes, it might take me two hours, but we're going to have a go. <laughs> Helen, if you need to leave, that's fine, that's fine. Uh, so turn with me to Acts chapter 16. If you could turn there nice and quickly for Helen's lunch, that would be great. <laughs> Father, we pray for Alan's turkey today. Uh, Acts chapter 16. I, I love the book of Acts. Do you love the book of Acts? If, um, if I'm not reading through uh, a Bible reading scheme, one of the places I go just for recreational reading uh, is the book of Acts, because there's just this energy there, isn't there? There's just this momentum uh, written by uh, Luke, who along the journey becomes part of the journey. And so the first half of the book of Acts, Luke's talking about them and they, and then there's these great passages where it shifts to us and we. Uh, so when we're reading uh, chapter 16, we're reading from somebody who was actually there uh, as all this was going on. So we'll pick it up at verse 11, Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, uh, the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, uh, a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth who came from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of the Lord. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. 
We'll read a bit more in a moment, but Father, we just pray that as we open your word today, that we know something of your spirit to illuminate, to open, uh, to inspire, to stretch us, God, in our thinking, in our faith, to encourage us. So Holy Spirit, would you draw near and just use these words to set your fire down in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul's arrived in a place called Philippi. It's not where he was in originally setting out for. If you read the start of this chapter, he wanted to go somewhere else, but the Spirit of Jesus prevents him from going there. And in his dream, uh, he gets sent to Macedonia. And so he ends up in a Roman colony. This is a dangerous place to try and spread uh, the message of Jesus. Uh, the Roman Empire was fairly open to uh, other beliefs and other religions as long as you never claimed it was exclusive, as long as they could fit it into this sort of patchwork, patchwork quilt of different beliefs and, and traditions, they were okay. So the fact that Paul goes to a Roman colony immediately uh, kind of pricks our ears up that this is going to be a dangerous place uh, to go. When he's there, he goes to the river. Now, Jews who'd been scattered throughout the Roman Empire uh, couldn't always set up a synagogue. They couldn't always have a meeting place. Uh, and so they figured, well, we'll just go to the nearest river. And so it was kind of known that if you went down to the river on the Sabbath, there'd be others there that were gathered to pray. Uh, anyone know that song, I Keep Going to the River to Pray? Got no idea if she knows, but it's kind of based on, on a Jewish tradition. Uh, and so Paul thinks to himself, well, my background is Jewish. Uh, Jewish people who are believing in God's promises and God's Messiah might be open to my message. And so he goes to the place of prayer. And when he's there, he meets someone called Lydia. Uh, now, Lydia is, is not a Jewish name. She's not from a Jewish province. She's a very wealthy business owner. She deals in, in purple cloth, which was very extravagant, very expensive uh, back in the day. And Paul begins to share with her some of her faith in Jesus, his faith in Jesus. And then there's this verse that Luke uses, that the Lord opened her heart to receive his message. Isn't that incredible? Paul opened his mouth but the Lord opened her heart. This is somebody who probably wasn't one of the people that Paul thought was going to be among the first converts, kind of an unlikely person. Really, she was a worshipper of God. There was something about this Jewish faith, this Jewish tradition that attracted her. She was clearly searching for something. But it wasn't Paul's words. He might have opened his mouth, but the Lord opened her heart. Sometimes we worry about our words, don't we? Sometimes we worry, if I try and share something of my faith and somebody asks a question and I don't know the answer, am I going to just do everyone a disservice? Am I going to let everyone down? And sometimes we wonder, can I explain my faith? Can, can I share it? There's incredible encouragement here that the Lord opens people's hearts. The Bible tells us, doesn't it, that we look at the outward appearance but the Lord is looking at our hearts. And the Lord is able to do what I can't do, what you can't do, what nobody's words are able to do on their own, to open our hearts. And for a lot of us here today, if we're following Jesus, I presume there was a time when it went deeper than just thinking something or, or mentally agreeing to something. There was a heart response 
God did something much, much deeper in us, and God opened, opened our hearts, and it'd be great to hear um, all those stories today. We're going to hear something of Alex's story a little bit later on, but uh, I, we love those stories, don't we, when God opens someone's heart. And I wonder today if somebody just needs to be encouraged to keep on opening your mouth because the Lord can open somebody's heart. To keep on sharing. That even as we go about our, our everyday lives, as the world is, is watching us, as uh, unchristian, non-Christian friends and family and colleagues are seeing us, there is something that the Lord is able to communicate through that, to change hearts, to, to change minds. I was meeting up with somebody uh, just this week who asked if they could catch up to pray, uh, and um, they mentioned something that I, I prayed over them years ago. I did, I'd even I'd half forgotten saying it, but it had meant something to them. And your words matter. Who you are matters. What you share matters through you. God is able to open people's hearts. And so Lydia gets baptized. Uh, and that's the pattern in the New Testament that we believe, we repent, and then we're baptized. So the baptism itself is, is not magic. It doesn't do anything. It happens after we repent and baptize. It's a public symbol of something that's already happened. As we've said to Jesus, Lord, you alone can cleanse me, you alone can release me. And then we walk through this symbol together, this symbol that he's been given, uh, that's been given to us by him uh, to show the world, Jesus has cleaned me. Jesus has, has cleansed me and now I'm rising to a new life together. And this happens for Lydia uh, and the members of her household. And then she says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at our house. And so now in Philippi, there's this house that Paul can use as a sort of a base of operations. So he stays there, it says, uh, a couple of days, and the people who was with him, Silas and, and Luke and others. And then we pick it up again at verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, so they're going back to the river, we met a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled, he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered that they be stripped and beaten. After they were severely flogged, they were thrown into a prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. 
When the jailer woke up and saw that his prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell in trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them and was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Quite a diary, isn't it, of the church? So it begins in this way. There's a kind of a ripple effect out from, from one moment into, into many others. Paul and, and Silas are going about ministering to people, preaching and praying for people. And then there's this girl that starts following them. And she shouts something after them. She's a, a slave girl. Now, at the height of the Roman Empire, it's estimated that there was something like 60 million slaves from across the world, men, women, and, and children. These people were traded as, as property, like you would buy, a, if you're a, a farmer, like you'd buy a piece of equipment to work the land. The slaves were traded uh, as, as little more than equipment to work in people's homes and, and people's businesses. They had no rights. They had no opportunities. Anything that they earned or their work earned went straight to their slave owners. In every sense of the word, this young girl is a non-person in terms of her society. She has no freedom at all. But the chains that she has are not just physical and financial and social. There's also spiritual chains as well. Luke tells us that she has a spirit by which she's able to tell the future. Now, the word uh, that's used there in, in the Greek about that spirit is that it's a, a python spirit. And that comes from an old Greek uh, myth about Apollos defeating a massive serpent or dragon outside of the temple of the Oracle of, of Delphi. And the idea was that this uh, serpent or this dragon was able to tell the future. And when Apollos killed it, or Apollo, sorry, killed it, uh, the spirit of it went into the priestesses at, at Delphi. And that's the word that's used about this girl. Uh, so people think of her as somebody who is possessed by a serpent or a dragon spirit uh, and that can tell the future. Uh, now, the word that's used for fortune-telling describes uh, being thrown into a frenzy, so much so that the voice that people hear doesn't come from uh, the person themselves. And so uh, the word that we now use for ventriloquist comes from this type of fortune-telling. And there were frauds, there were people that, that could fake it uh, and play act at it, but there were also people that were possessed uh, by, by evil spirits, by demons that would do this and that would predict the future. It's interesting, isn't it, that the enemy would do that. You see, we all have this fear, don't we, of what we don't know. And because the future contains so much of the unknown, we all want to control the future. Uh, to some degree, we all arrange our lives around trying to secure the best future for us. Uh, and so if the enemy can create a fascination, an obsession, a dependency uh, on this way, it takes us away from trusting God. And this is what was happening. Uh, and so she starts following Paul and Silas around and just disrupting what they're doing. 
She's screaming. She's yelling wherever they go, whatever they do. She screams at them, these men are servants of the Most High God. The enemy knows who we are, even if we don't know who we are. They're servants, and they're telling you the way to be saved. The enemy is so clever. And sometimes we imagine that if God says white, that the devil, the enemy, would say black. But if he did that, we'd all recognize it as false, wouldn't we, and as wrong, and we'd run from it. And so what he does is he paints with shades of gray. These deceptions are so subtle and cunning. He weaves truth in with deception. It's a little bit like if you've ever had to buy rat poison. The content of what you're buying is only about 1% poison, and 99% is something that the rats might want to eat. And that's true of the enemy, and, and his lies is that there is truth and deception all, all weaved together. And so she's not wrong in saying that they're servants of the Most High. She's not wrong in saying that they've come to show us the way to be saved. But if people stop listening to them and start listening to her, and if she's kind of somehow seen as part of the team, or, or, or it, it, just col- it just colors, it just disrupts, it just makes a mess of what the Lord is trying to do. And th- Luke tells us that this goes on for several days. This poor girl, already enslaved by a cultural system, thrown into frenzy after frenzy after frenzy, controlled by this demonic influence. And Paul's not looking for a fight. This goes on for days. And then it says that he became so troubled. You sometimes wonder why some of the things that we read in the scriptures we don't seem to see today we don't seem to see happening not part of our uh, our own spiritual experience our own life we read about them elsewhere or hear about them elsewhere i worry sometimes that we don't get troubled enough things don't bother us enough this greek word that um, luke uses to describe paul's reaction means to be troubled in the core of his being He could have got angry. He could have got bothered by this. He could have got fed up of this. And I'm sure there's a sense of that as well. But the deepest response, the one that Luke records, is he's troubled by it. And I wonder, am I troubled by the world? Am I troubled by people's pain and struggle? Am I troubled when I see the grip that the enemy has on people? Or have I become so desensitized to it that I don't respond to it? But I don't bring it, drag it into God's presence and say, God, you've got to do something. I'm not bothering the door of heaven enough. Are we troubled by the grip that the enemy has on, on so many people's lives? And so Paul, troubled by this, turns to this poor girl and he addresses the Spirit. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to get out of her. He doesn't pray doesn't ask nicely. He stands on the authority of the name of Jesus. And immediately, the Spirit leaves her. There's no neutral ground here. There's no, well, we might, or we, you know, there's no struggle. It's the name of Jesus. And for some of us today, maybe as we hear this story, we're aware that there are chains in our lives. Maybe not the the, the type that are being described here, but there are invisible chains 
in us. We're, we're tied to something. We're attached to something. We've tried to, to break free from it, but we still can't. That might be a, a behavior. It might be a thought pattern. It, it might be something more, more serious that we just can't, can't shift out of. You know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as, as free people, don't we? They make free choices. And yet we try and go a week without caffeine or a weekend without alcohol, and we realize actually we're more attached to things than we want to admit to ourselves. And some of that is, is big stuff in our lives. And I want to say to each and every one of us today, there is freedom in the name of Jesus. That Jesus can release us from things that by our own efforts alone we can't. That one word from Jesus has more authority than we, than we fully possibly imagine. Jesus tells the disciples as he sends them out uh, two by two into the world, I give you authority over evil spirits. He's, he's given his people, his, his disciples, his church, that authority. Are we troubled enough? Are we believing enough to step into that? So she's released, she's free, and the owners realize she's worth nothing to us now. Our ability to, to make money from her is, is gone. And so suddenly she's in this intensely vulnerable position. She's not wanted by anyone now, just, just abandoned. And they drag Paul and Silas to the marketplace, which is where the uh, kind of disputes of the day, the, um, the, the trials took place. And they bring this accusation uh, before the, uh, the magistrates there. Interestingly, they don't mention the slave girl or the freedom that she has uh, or the message that they're bringing. There's this weird trumped-up charge about them advocating practices that are unlawful for Romans to practice. No, I don't, didn't see any of that, but there we are. That's, that's the charge that's brought. And so the magistrates order that Paul and Silas be severely flogged. The word that's used in the Greek there to describe this is a technical term, which means to be beaten with rods. So they're stripped naked publicly and beaten with thick pieces of wood. It was incredibly excruciatingly painful. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. And then they're dragged off. And interestingly, they're put into an inner cell. So this is high maximum security. So people are worried about these people. They're worried about what they can do. Uh, and then we're told that their feet are put into stocks. Now, when we think of stocks, we're probably thinking of things that we've seen done at the carnival, where people put their hands on their heads and they get stuff chucked at them. But the stocks that are being described here were actually in the floor. Uh, and they were a, wooden a piece of wood that was uh, buried into the, the stones of the floor with two holes for your feet. And so you were uh, chained up in, into those stocks which meant that the duration of the time you were in prison, you were either stood for the whole time, so unable to sleep, or the only way that you could sit down and rest was to bend your feet into this impossibly agonizing position, which you might do for a while to rest your legs and then, then get back up. So by any stretch of the imagination, by any description of this event, Paul and Silas have been beaten to within an inch of their life, humiliated, uh, and are now put into this position where they're unable to rest or recover uh, from their injuries. And we read these words about what they're up to. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Now, at, at this point, I think I'm still in. I think I probably would be praying at this point. And singing hymns to God. 
and the other prisoners were, were listening to them. They're singing hymns. And the word for hymns there that is used is, is, is of a joyful anthem. About midnight, after a day of defeat and brokenness and physical pain, singing praises to God. What could stop a man like Paul? You could take his freedom, to misquote a famous film, but you could not take his song. That's freedom, isn't it? That's freedom. When you can strip everything else away from a person, but not take their song. I'll highlight that this morning because I know for some of us, we've walked through seasons where people that we've needed, where things that we've clinged on to, where things that are precious to us have been torn and ripped away, but you've kept your song. You've kept going. You've, you've kept your hope. And I want you to know that even those moments where the hallelujah feels so broken, feels so faithless, feels so empty, feels so feeble, those things still reach heaven. Those things are, are, are still heard, and there is power in our praise. We're told that there's this earthquake that happens, but it's a really strange kind of earthquake. It's an earthquake that opens doors and breaks chains. It's a, it's a supernatural, miraculous moment. I've heard of earthquakes that can bring walls down or create chasms in a road or bring, bring destruction. But this one does none of that. None of that's recorded. All that happens is the whole place is shaken. And the world is shaken by our praise. When we deliberately decide, and praise is always a choice, I know in our lives we often praise when we feel like it, don't we? But praise can be a choice. When we choose, despite the circumstances, despite the, the stripping away, despite the praise, God, you are, uh, despite the pain, God, you are worthy of praise. The foundations around us are shaken by that. The things that we're obsessed by and, and glued to and addicted to get shaken up. When we decide to say, God, you're the source of my life. You're the hope of my life. You're, you, you're where I find my identity and my meaning and my purpose and my king. Everything gets shaken up a little bit. And those doors, those boundaries, those limits in our lives suddenly start to open up. It's really interesting to me that it wasn't just their doors and their chains. It was all the doors and all the chains. Something happens when we push through, doesn't it? When we, when we break through, when we keep going, it, it, it's a sign for others. It's a, it's a hope for others as well. And so this jailer then bursts into the room. This one who's been part of the squad that has beaten them, certainly the one that, that chained them up in stocks and locked the door behind them, he comes bursting in. Now, in Roman society, the, the jailers were often former soldiers that were either back and had too many injuries to be on the battlefield or were looking for an easy retirement, a kind of a quiet life. Uh, these were tough guys that had seen warfare uh, and could be entrusted with, with prisoners and overseeing a prison. Uh, this is not some kind of gentle guy with a big kind of thing of keys that falls asleep in the corner. This is somebody you don't want to mess with. And he comes in. And to add the um, pressure onto them, the deal was if your prisoner escaped, then what was going to happen to them will happen to you. And so that's the worry. That's the thing that they carry. That's the burden. That's why they have to keep people locked up in jail. And so he just presumes. 
well, my life is forfeit. So he draws his sword ready to kill himself. And Paul looks at the guy who has beaten him and imprisoned him, about to commit suicide, and says, don't. Grace wins. What would it be like if you and I walked through this world and the people that have hurt us and cost us, we don't look at and wish for them to feel our pain or our agony. We don't wish revenge. We cry out to them, don't, don't hurt yourself, don't harm yourself. And this man who's seen warfare, seen many battles, retired from all of that, comes in and trembles before them and says, what must I do to be saved? He gets it. He sees it. Your God is more powerful than all the gods of Rome. Your God has more power than all my swords and might and armies put together. What must I do to be saved? And this one of the clearest, most um, uh, straightforward in, uh, invitations you can get. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. And they begin to teach him. So he takes them out of prison and he walks them into his house. And he stops and he cleans their wounds. In that lovely moment, I mean, this man has never washed anyone else's wounds in his whole life. It was not part of his job. But something has so changed in his heart that he wants to somehow put right something that he's done. You know, sometimes we think that our forgiveness is just between us and God. And of course, in terms of your salvation, it is. But something happens in us, doesn't it, when we're forgiven, when we're cleansed, that we want to somehow make recompense, we want to make amends. I wonder if there's somebody's wounds that we just need to go in and wash and apply grace to, apply peace to. And then it says, at that hour, he and his whole household were baptized. So it's been a long day. <laughs> it's been an emotional day. It's gone midnight by this point. His jail is broken. The doors are open. The chains are released. He's not bothered by any of that at this point. Let's get baptized. And so this jailer, <laughs> this gruff, rough Roman guy, gets washed clean, gets saved by Jesus. And at the end of this chapter, we're not going to uh, read it all today, I said I didn't know how long it'd be. But uh, at the end of it, then, Paul and Silas are, are released. There's a, a, a few things around that which I won't go into now, but they're released. And then they go to Lydia's house, and Lydia's house becomes this sort of center. So can you imagine this for just a moment? In one church in Philippi, you've got Lydia, this um, wealthy businesswoman whose house has just been opened up for the church to use. You've got this slave girl who was possessed by a fortune-telling spirit, and you've got a Roman soldier, all kind of bumping around in this church together, kind of getting to know each other and sharing stories together. There's nothing like the church, is there? The only thing <laughs> these three people have got in common is Jesus. Culturally, economically, relationally, spiritually, the only thing, the only reason they know each other at all is Jesus. I love it when Paul writes to the church in Philippi then, years later, and he says, 
when I remember you, I always pray with joy. Really, Paul, you were beaten to within an inch of your life? And you pray with joy about that? Yes, because I would go through that again if it means he'll be saved. As Paul says, as I think about this church, and as Paul later in another letter talks about baptism, he, he talks about being baptized into the body of Jesus. That actually there was one thing these three people shared, and it was the waters of baptism. You know, as, as we look around at each other today, I mean this as politely as I can. We're different, aren't we? We're all different. Some of you are very different, but that's okay, that's okay. And yet in Jesus, we share this common ground, this common grace. Because we all need this, see. Whether you're really rich and your story's quite straightforward. I was exploring the Jewish faith and then I met this guy called Paul and he explained it all to me. Or whether it's really dramatic. I had a, a past where I was kind of, you know, oppressed with, with spiritual forces that I couldn't control. Whether we have a great big dramatic conversion story, a very simple story, whether we're wealthy, whether we're poor, whether we're young, whether we're old, we all find this place in the church. There's nothing like the church. And Paul says to them, what God began in you, he will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so this morning, we, we come to share in something of Alex's story. and We're thrilled to stand with you today, Alex, as a family, as a body together. And as Jesus welcomes you, we, we welcome you too. And let's just pause to pray as we come to this time together. And I just want to invite you, if there's an area in your life where you're needing that freedom. It strikes me this, this Roman jailer probably looked like the most free man in town, and yet if his prisoners escaped, he knew he was, his life was forfeit. Some forms of freedom are actually a form of slavery in disguise. And maybe this morning you're aware of invisible chains around you. And so, in the name of Jesus today, we speak freedom. In the power of Jesus today, we speak release. Lord, I thank you for the freedom that we have in you. The freedom to know you, the freedom to discover more about you, the freedom to serve you. The freedom to walk away from patterns of shame and regret and brokenness and addiction. Things that once had such a claim on us. That pale into insignificance in the power of Jesus. Oh Lord, I want to pray this morning for anybody that might have lost their song. Anybody who is struggling today to find words of praise, to find songs of hope. Anybody who's right in the midnight of their struggle. And yet, Lord, I thank you that those cries are heard. Even when we feel like we're at the lowest of the low. When life is as tough and as rough as it can get. Thank you that you're with us and that you have the power to rock the foundations until things that limited us and blocked us and 
stood like a doorway in front of us, spring open. And I pray that for us today, Lord, for each and every one of us. Lead us further into your freedom. Lead us further out into you, that we might be people of grace, that we might be people of hope. Oh, would you bless Alex as we stand with him today? And I thank you, Lord, that as he says his yes to you in this way, that you speak your yes over him. As we come in Christ, you say to us today, as you said over Jesus, this is my child whom I love. With them I am well pleased. Lord, might we know the freedom and the forgiveness of knowing that you have called us your child. So Lord, would you help us to stand on that promise, to stand on your word, to stand in you and with you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen.